I was really mad at her for years after high school um, because she was like teacher of the year for like five, six years. And I just thought she was the worst. She went to a black church once and was like, oh, I know all about black people. And oh would my. talk at like this knowing. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Cedrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone. Sometimes I'm dining with friends. And sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Yvette Dubell is a speaker, artist researcher, and personal innovation mentor, founding CEO of Web Antiphon Group, author of Why Brand Risk Management Innovation is a Game Changer and a Cure for Racism, as well as creator of the Empowered Innovation System. She serves conscious leaders looking for outside-box thinking with vision and wisdom to drive triple bottom-line success, profit, people, planet. For more than two decades, Yvette has built a reputation as a big picture thinker and social innovator that knows how to drive short-term goals without letting what matters most fall by the wayside. Yvette is also artist researcher in residence, coordinating the We the World Freedom Campaign and founding director of the We Freedom Film Fest as part of 11 Days of Global Unity, launched in 2020. Okay, welcome back to Diversity Dish. My guest today is Yvette Dubell. Hey, Yvette, how are you? Hello, how are you? Lovely I'm to be with you. Well, it is a pleasure to have you here. And my listeners cannot see, maybe they will, but you look so lovely. I love your <laughs> locks and the beautiful, I mean, it's all just working together. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I like Absolutely. to wear a lot of jewelry because I make it and it's fun. Nice. Okay. It's relaxing, you know? Yes. Is that is that something that you do for fun on the side or do you sell your jewelry or just... just... No, it's part of my, my artist practice. It's a way that I work through and I'm into gemstones and some of the woo-woo of that. And so I love that. <laughs> I love it. Heart chakra stone I've been wearing for a little bit. Nice. Nice. A way to learn new skills, like learning to wrap stones, mm -hmm. all the problem solving of making stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things that go into different um, mediums that we don't know if we don't do them. Right. And we don't know the tools. We don't know the process. We don't know the heartache. We don't know the, the, the you know, we just don't know because it's not our reality. So, <laughs> so many things are like that. So, so many. And it's, um, it's, I, I like it because it, I, I find it to be a, like a really good metaphor. You know, there's a lot of problem solving. You make a piece and sometimes I have a piece that has a heavier crystal on it yeah. that kept breaking. And so I had to really look at it. Why is it breaking? And so I learned about different kinds of knots and tried this, I think it's called a half hatch knot. It's what you use when you tie your food up in the tree, you know, okay. when you get a load bearing knot. So I was like, I had 
spent a day looking up load bearing knots. And so anyway, um, I just was amazed at how it, I was so proud because then I had to conceal it because I didn't want it to be very visible. And so it's just a whole thing. And um, nobody that I was like yapping about it to like really care the day <laughs> that I was. <laughs> it's like, All okay, excuse. Yvette, let's move on. <laughs> like, look at this half hatch knot I did. Uh, so yeah, it's um, it's a great problem song. It's one of the reasons that I focus on art-based solutions because of how many layers there are at work mm. um, when you're creating something. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, before we get into any more of what you do, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you are passionate about right now? Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm passionate about so many things. Um, <laughs> I am passionate right now about, I'm collaborating with a friend uh, in Minneapolis around developing some leadership programs and focusing on preparing leadership for the world that we actually live in um, mm -hmm. and the world that we want to create. I am in the middle of the We Freedom Film Fest, which is a film festival that I founded last year. Um, and so we, that, that film festival focuses on a media that encourages people to imagine a future that's better than our past. Mm. And that is something I see a real deficit in, <laughs> not just today, but probably for the last 20 something years. And what else am I excited about? Well, my work, my artwork, you know, I have like this piece is what I'm thinking about. And, yeah. Uh, I've been thinking about this one for a while. So anyway, so, so many things. So, so many, I have a long list. <laughs> You're multi-passionate. I love it. Yes, there you go. There you go. I have an anniversary coming up next month. So. Oh, a wedding anniversary, a yeah, birthday. A wedding anniversary. Oh, wonderful. 32, 33, something like that. Oh, wow. I love it. Well, that's wonderful. I love that. Um, I love that your passion is tied up in your work because, you know, sometimes people, they're passionate about one thing and they're doing another thing. And I'm, and, and it's, it's kind of like, well, why aren't you doing what you're passionate about? Why aren't you over here? And it's like, no, I'm just doing this over here. It's like, no, do your passion. Cause you don't, you will, that's where you will excel. And that's where you will just really shine. Right. Um, well, you know, that can be really uncomfortable if you're used to like sort of um, when you get accustomed to maybe being in a little bit of a rut, you know, um, it True. can seem really comfortable and seem much harder. Change can seem harder for people. And that's sort of where that's my sweet spot. You know, that's what I focus on is helping people transform and um, understanding what what's going to be different or what what will their life look like if they don't. Yes. I, right. So is right. So it's kind of like, is it more painful to change than it is to stay the same? Like what, what life, right. I can I, you know, look, my daughter says it's morbid. I don't think it's morbid. I think it's practical because we <laughs> don't die. Everybody knows this, but if you think about when you die, what will you, will you regret not having made that move? What do you actually want your legacy to be when you're not here? Do you want it to be the nine to five job? Did you do a great job for that company and that will be enough for you? Or do you need something else? You know, yeah. is there something else inside of you that you, you don't want to leave this life having not shared with the world? 
Yes. And I like, I really like that, that, that word legacy. What is the legacy that you want to leave? Right. Yes. Um, legacy is, can be in so many different things, mm-hmm. different ways that you can leave a legacy, but is it the one that you want to leave? Is it what you want people? Cause you to will leave one. You will, no matter what. Or not. <laughs> yes. Because you walked this way, you came this way. So right. are is it what you left? Did you leave what you wanted or did you leave what came by default, right? And that was something that I had to contend with a few years ago, you know, after my cancer diagnosis. Am I doing what I wanna be doing or am I just living by default? And the answer came back that I was living by default and I am so far removed from that person and that life wow. now I love that living by default that's good yeah because good. you know you because you just do the next easy thing mm-hmm. right doing the next easy thing doing the next easy thing and it may not seem like it's easy because you may feel like oh it's you know life is hard right quote unquote but essentially living by default is not being intentional about how you're living right exactly exactly right letting life happen to you yes instead of choosing your life yes and I think that's an important part of that's the other side of the diversity inclusion piece Mm -hmm. you know a lot of our work focuses on helping the beneficiaries of systemic racism to transform Mm -hmm. um but the other side of that is those of us that have been the um the victims I don't like Mm -hmm. that word but sure um, uh, th- those of us who, who, who've been marginalized, let's say it that way, by, by systems in our lives. And um, I think that it's harder sometimes coming from that space to feel self-actualized. Yes. Because yes. Come, there's, there's a system that tries to define you and put you in this box and apply this label to you. And I feel like so much of our life is just shouting in spirit, if not verbally, who we are, like our truth and trying to express that in as many ways as we can, um, simply to assert our right to be. I think if we get lucky, we get to a point where we're not trying to assert it to somebody else to prove to them, but instead it's a, it's a reinforcement, it's a, valid, a self-validation. And I think that's a big part of what it is when you say yes to your own passion. And so that's the pre-work, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And when you think about that, like when we think about the, the marginalizations that we've had, it comes in so many different forms, right? There's so many things that are telling us you're not enough. You're not good enough. You need to be different. You're, this you're for you. Yes. This isn't for you. This is for someone else who right. looks different than you or who uh-huh. is different. You know, all these things and you have to kind of cut through all that noise to find yourself because you you're hearing all these messages all the time. They're, you know, uh, television shows, books, movies, advertising, everything tells, gives that message. And you're cutting through all of that to say, who am I? And when I get to that, I know who I am. Now you have to go, I know who I am. I don't have to show you necessarily. I have to prove to you. I have to be comfortable within myself to be that person. Yes. 
however it shows up in the world, right? Hey, thanks for listening. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and I help entrepreneurs and small businesses go from mediocre to magnificent by transforming their cultures to be more equitable and inclusive. To find out how we can work together, go to diversitydish.com, where you'll find my consulting, coaching, and speaker information. Diversitydish.com. I look forward to working with you. Not Um, easy. I was like, yeah, you make it sound so easy. (laughs) It is a life journey for sure. When you were saying that, I was thinking about hair as a perfect example. Like now you have states legislating hair, protection of of our hair, of our natural hair. And I remember when I've had dreadlocks for about as long as I've been married, Um, Mm -hmm. but they used to be really long. And so now I keep them short. But when I decided to grow dreadlocks, that in a sense was a decision because back in those days, there were a lot of places where you were not welcomed with this kind of a hairstyle. Mm -hmm. And so that automatically meant that I wasn't going to follow a certain path, corporate, for example. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but even just <laughs> professional circles, it it wasn't accepted, mm-hmm. you know. And when I had them long, I think even more so. Yeah, there, you know, even in small what ways. Your hair is, you know, when you think about what your hair is in your construction of your presentation to the world. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a, it's a very big deal. And it was a, it's a big commitment, whatever. Well, not necessarily, I guess now people wear a lot of wigs and stuff, so they don't have to commit. But when you wear a natural hairstyle, it yeah, was certainly yeah. seen as a, a commitment and a statement. And I think for a long time, I didn't understand exactly what the statement was <laughs> yes. um, that people thought I was making that was so offensive, you know, yes. like I didn't I didn't get quite get that, you know, like, what is it that's offensive? Yeah. You know, when when I first cut out, when I first cut off my hair way back 20 plus years ago. Wow. And I've had locks as well. I've had locks. I I cut mine short like yours for a little while. My hair is my muse, right? My hair every so often. (laughs) And I'm in this stage right now where I'm trying to decide what I want to do. I've had my hair short for three years. I, you know, I went through, I I had locks, I cut them off. And then after cutting them off, I learned I had cancer. And so all my hair fell out and Mm. it's been growing back, but now I'm kind of restless. I'm like at this place where, what do I do next? What do I want to do? Do I want to let it grow out? Do I want to leave it short? Do I want to do the locks again? But when I first cut my hair off, I did it because I was tired of trying to grow my, my relaxed hair, but yet always wearing it in a ponytail. And I, and I thought to myself, what is the point of having long hair if all I'm going to do is put in a ponytail because I really like my sleep? I didn't want to get up in the morning. And Same. <laughs> That's why I locked mine. When I moved away, got married, and my mother was not responsible for my my hair care bills yes. anymore, and it fell on me, and I suddenly realized how much it cost. Um, <laughs> and finding a good, you know, good stylist, beautician, back then we called them beauticians, now we call them stylists, is I, not easy. And, you know, the chemical burns with relaxers, oof. I moved to a new place, and that scared the living tar out of me, I have to say. 
uh, when I saw like those and I was just praying my hair didn't like come out in patches. Oh, yeah. Not, um, but same thing that you're saying. I wasn't really into doing my hair. I kept it like in a braid or in a ponytail. And it was the same thing. It's like, why do that if I really don't want to do my hair? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when I cut it, it was so interesting to me because when I cut it, the amount of attention that I received, especially from men, was was a shock to me. Because growing up, of course, it's always thought that, oh, the longer your hair, the more beautiful you are, the straighter your hair, the more beautiful. I cut it off. I had a little tiny curly fro thing. And I got so much attention that I wasn't prepared for. I was like, I don't understand. The messages are wrong. Like something is wrong (laughs) with the messaging here. (laughs) Everybody says it opens up your face. Yes. Right. Like it opens up. And that's one of the, one of the comments that I received from my cousin. She was like, Oh my gosh, I can see your eyes and they're so beautiful. I was like, okay. But you know, the messaging is so is wrong, right? It's, it's just, it's conflicting. The message is conflicting. It's like, no, grow your hair. You got to have straight hair. No, wear it natural. No, you don't want to wear it natural because it's not professional or it doesn't. Well, and it wasn't tied to being successful. Don't you think that for a long time, the straight hair was tied to being successful? Yes. Right? There's this way that you had to look and, and be in the world that just so much was defined by the hair. And when you think about what, what we go through, to keep our hair straight. Yes. Um, I remember Al Roker's wife, I cannot think of her name. She's um, a reporter, producer on um, for ABC, it used to be um, 2020 or something. Anyway, she talked about when she, back when you couldn't have natural hair and she went to her producers apparently and were talking about it. And um, she was trying to explain to them that if she had to go work out and she sweat her hair out, she, you know, had to go to the stylist or, you know, get her hair done again, or if she got caught in the rain and what an inconvenience this was. With, mm. with her I don't think that that necessarily changed the policy, but I remember that was the first time I heard that discussed on a national sort of stage, you know, on a news broadcast. Um, that was a long time ago. It's probably, it might've been in the nineties or very early 2000s. Yes. And there, and there are things like that, that are not apparent to others. It's like, well, why don't you just jump in the shower and wash your hair? Because then I jump in the shower and wash my hair and it becomes what it is as it grows out of my head. You are offended. Why? I have no idea, but you're offended if I wear my hair the way it grows out of my head after I take a shower, wash it, comb it through, and it's fine. And you're like, "Mm, you're making a statement. I don't know what statement I'm making. Well, you know what? I get it now. People who live in a society where they unquestionably accept right that this sort of notion um of a eurocentric notion of beauty Mm. so when we reject that it suggests Mm. that we might be rejecting a whole lot more than just that standard of beauty do you know what i mean um i've wondered about this too like why is 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 our hair such a threat and i think that that's what it is it's a sim because i remember in high school and i didn't have natural hair then but for other reasons Several of my teachers, my black teachers, pulled me aside my junior year, mm-hmm. giving me this sort of talking to. And it was basically about how I needed to conform and fall in line. 
And because I did not do that, one of the things that came up really recently that I told my brothers, like, I think I couldn't process the emotions then because when you're in these things, you just have to survive them yeah. and get through. And I spent like a morning afternoon on and off, like crying about stuff that happened like my senior year mm. high school and just like, kind of like, what kind of adults would do this? Well, what it was, was here, I'll tell you, this is, this fits right in. Um, despite having, you know, been in honors classes and advanced placement, testing out of some of my general college stuff, senior year, I was taking, you know, advanced math and all of that stuff. I didn't get a single guidance counselor that wanted to help me look for college, apply for college, find scholarship money. And all of my Black classmates that I was friendly with who did get that, who got, you know, the scholarships from churches and, and all of this sort of, and got that hand-holding guidance to apply. None of them had SAT scores as high as mine. None of their grades were as high as mine. None of them were as smart as me. I'm mm -hmm. not like saying I was the smartest person in the world, but I just did not understand why that was seen as a better investment of the community's resources. And so I, some, one of my um, mentors uh, asked me, when did I first internalize the message that I was not of value mm. and that was, time. that was the memory that came up where I really in this more childish adult way kind of like understood like these people are telling me that there's not a place for me if I'm going to be this way that there's not a place for me and what is this way I mean I don't right think that's what I was gonna ask you like what what way like how were you <laughs> like what like this but with less jewel what different jewelry I was outspoken. I was upfront. I was somewhat confrontational, I guess. I have no tolerance for bullshit. Never have. Sorry. Don't focus on Nope. It's okay. And I was, I would ask questions. And just as an example, I remember Miss Pearsall, rest in peace. And I stopped going to church when I was 15. The church girls were all like having sex and stuff. And mm. I was seen as the bad girl because I was honest about the fact that I'm not doing this. And so one, we had had this argument in the library about various sex acts and which was more of a sin. And I cursed and I smoked cigarettes and I drank. And they were asserting that I was for sure going to hell for doing those things, but they were not going to hell for being hypocrites. And somebody had done some sexual things in the church during one of those youth lock-ins. Mm. I was like, that is for sure a, a, a sin. So when they did that thing where they separate the girls and the boys and you get to ask your questions, they had us put them in a basket. And I, to this day, do not know how they knew I had written those. I didn't think any of them knew me well enough to know my handwriting, but I had asked some questions about some sexual things and which was a more of a sin. And some of it was like, if somebody puts something inside of somebody, is that mm. more of an anal sex or oral sex kind of a thing? Um, because everybody thought I did some provocative artwork. That was the basis. And I had a car. So, you know, people assume if you're skipping school, you must be out like having sex. And I wasn't, you know, I was like taking photographs. I was working on my art projects. I hung out in the library a lot. I love the smell of the library. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of time in the basement of the university library. And so my mother understood and kind of accepted this, but everybody else thought like I was like this awful little whatever. And so that was, Miss Pearsall called me out and uh, she asked me like, did I write this? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I think maybe she wanted to make sure I wasn't being abused or something. Mm. Um, and I was like, no, no. 
I won't say the person's name, but this person, you know, they were talking about this stuff and they said it wasn't a sin um, because it wasn't vaginal intercourse. And I was saying, I think that's more of a sin than my cursing or smoking cigarettes, just saying. Mm -hmm. And she didn't answer the question. <laughs> but I got pulled out twice more to get a talking to. <laughs> and so um, I, never one of those. I never went to another one. Um, so like, that's like, you know what I mean? Like that kind of like conformity. And I think I looked at, I've studied and explored a lot of spiritual and religious traditions and met people from all walks of life. And they very generously invited me into, you know, their, their spiritual practices and their spiritual communities. And I always had that interest. And I just saw so much hypocrisy in the church, churches of my youth. It wasn't helpful. Let's just put it that way. It just was not helpful. Yeah, yeah. And so that assumption that all Black people are Christian, like that was an early thing. And I had somebody tell me that I might as well be. Uh, and I was like, if you think I'm a better Christian than you and I'm not a Christian, you really need to do some self-reflection. Because telling me I'm going to hell is the wrong focus. You know? Right? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, if you think you're a Christian and you're saying, I might as well be a Christian because you think I live more of a Christian life than you do. Yes. Self-reflection. Right? <laughs> 100%. So I think a lot of it was just that I didn't, I just didn't fit in. I wasn't into what everybody else was into. I was very comfortable kind of doing my own thing. And so I did a lot of my own thing, you know, and I turned in my assignments. I took my test. I didn't think that I necessarily meant that I needed to be in your class. And if I can get good grades in your class and not be in your class, you should ask yourself what you're doing wrong. Because that means I don't need you. I could do this with the book, right? And that was a conversation I had with my calculus teacher my senior year when we had some issues around some absentees, some, ab some absences, absences, yeah. And um, tardies, you know, three tardies equaled an absence. I'd miscalculated some tardies and, uh, you know, pushed the, the boundary a little too much. And I made that case to her. So I just think that my teachers used to talk about me, apparently, in the teacher's lounge. Right. And, Personally, my feeling is that I think because I was a child, I mean, of course, you know, it's the South and children shouldn't talk back, but especially because I was Black, it was not okay that I was as forthcoming with my opinions as I was and challenging to teachers who would teach their opinion as fact. You cannot do this. This is a history class that he was the best, that Roosevelt was the best president is your opinion. You cannot make me write an essay saying that and proving that. And right. this, um, that's just one example, but me and that teacher had it all year. And she finally failed me. She made our, essay, our, our final exam, 50% of the grade was an essay about exactly the things that we had been arguing about all year. And I was like, no, not, not doing it. And so I wrote my refute. Wow. <laughs> and I had to go to summer school. <laughs> but was it worth it though? summer school and I was like not happy with that because it was oh my god it was ridiculous it was like nothing against football coaches but the football coach was teaching and he had us read each chapter aloud and do the end of the chapter questions after he gave we he gave us the answers so we went through the questions he gave us the answers then we had to like take a test on it how could you not like get almost 100 and I forget what the 98 was because I took a um, you were only allowed to miss one day. So I took that one day. <laughs> <laughs> we had a pop quiz. So that was my 98. But 
it didn't weigh the same as an honors 98 because that was like taught as like a basic level. Right. It was eye-opening because there were people who failed that class that were there every day. And that was something I never would have conceived being a thing. Right. But I was really mad at her for years after high school um, because she was like teacher of the year for like five, six years. And I just thought she was the worst. She went to a black church once and was like, oh, I know all about black people and oh would my. talk to at like this knowing and I pressed her several times about the extent of her involvement that all of this vast knowledge of stereotypes was based on and it turned out she had gone to a black funeral oh my goodness that is you know it's so interesting I still remember your name anyway that's right <laughs> four minutes um, I just didn't feel that she should be, te- I had several teachers like that. And when I was younger, I had teachers who were really after me, like trying to fail me. My mother would have to come out and my mother you know, became an expert. I have to say on going and looking up legal statutes and legal precedents and coming in with like your violation of this, 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 it was, I just don't understand adults that would be that way to a child. I can't imagine ever mistreating a child. So then that kind of pivots us a little bit. We can pivot a little bit right here because if you don't see a person as fully human, you're not going to see their children as fully human. You're going to see their children as lacking no matter how much they put forth and show you that they- they resented it. I had teachers who punished me. I had a teacher in third grade, Vivian Mills, who <laughs> well, used to throw my work away and make me do it again. And at one point she finally moved me next to her desk because she was so sure that I was cheating. That you were cheating. Because how is it possible that you little black girl could be smart? Right? And and it's and it's a thing. And this is something that you know people don't seem to realize or understand. And you say that your guidance counselors never helped you with, they never gave you what you needed. There was no oh, it was all equity. On way. I mean, there was no, and there, there was there no black equity. guidance counselors, which was the thing that blew, that blew my mind was the black guidance counselors didn't see me as valuable because I didn't conform. I didn't dress. And it wasn't like I dressed yes. like super weird. It was, I wore army coat a lot because I had big pockets and I, I used to put yeah. food in my pockets and eat in my pockets. <laughs> <laughs> it was like basic. Um, I drew on my pants. Do you know what I mean? It was yes. I, I it just doesn't doesn't make sense to me. It never made sense. Okay. And it was like it clearly that was when I realized this is not the game is not what they say it is. They say you get good grades and you stay in honors and you take advanced yeah. placement, you test out of these general college classes. All these things are gonna help you. It didn't help me a lick. So I grew up in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I said before that I believe that that time period, because here's the thing, we're meant to to feel that civil rights movement was so long ago, like that it was just so long ago. I was born in 1968. That was the year that Martin Luther King was shot and killed, right? And after the civil rights movement, legislation went in, you know, all all the changes happened. I think what happened was there was this collective, well, now that we've got this, 
we have to conform. We need to make sure that we are worthy of what we have been bestowed or given or, you know, whatever word you choose to use, right. but it's, we have to make sure that we're worthy and that we do not rock the, that we don't, you know, do too much to make them feel like they need to take it away because representing the race, remember? Yes. Yes. We have to represent the race. <laughs> you remember that, right? Yes. It went from you're representing your family every time you walk out to every you're representing time. all of all us. of us. Like and ever and even to this day, I know that there are, you know, when you look at Naomi Osaka, when you look at Serena Williams, when you look at any of these athletes or actors and these people who are in in the forefront they understand that yes. as well. And that is something that they carry. And I've said to white people before, I said, when you accomplish something, do you accomplish it and think about how it's going to reflect on your race? No, the answer right. is always no. And I said, well, there's a huge difference there because whenever a black person accomplishes something, you think, yes, I'm doing this for the race. I'm pushing the race forward, right? I'm representing Right, we're representing for most for all minorities that I had conversation with about this kind of thing. I think that's true. Yes, they are yes. very aware that they because when you're the only one, yeah, or you know one of few, yeah, it makes you. And I think all of us grew up hearing that, so we are taught that from very early on. Yes. that your yes. deeds are not just your deeds. Correct. And so when you actually do stand up just for yourself and not, and it doesn't conform to what everyone's saying you need to conform to, you know, for the race, then yes, those people who think that you should be conforming, should is a word that I don't like, but those people who think that you should be conforming. You shouldn't on yourself. <laughs> you shouldn't on yourself, <laughs> right? They, they tend to shy away from you. They don't want to help because it's like, well, you're not, you're going nowhere because you're not doing what you're supposed right. to be doing. Right. Right. And so that to me is what that sounds like happened to you. And Very so much. what we're trying to do now is we're trying to empower people, all people mm -hmm. for themselves. Right. We're trying to empower our children for themselves. And to do that is to try is to not conform is to say you are okay the way that you show up in the world because that is the message that white kids get from the day one day right. one you are okay right. this world is made for you everything is yours go forth and prosper that is what we're trying to make sure that all everybody can do Hey, thanks for listening. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and I help entrepreneurs and small businesses go from mediocre to magnificent by transforming their cultures to be more equitable and inclusive. To find out how we can work together, go to diversitydish.com, where you'll find my consulting, coaching, and speaker information. Diversitydish.com. I look forward to working with you. Yes, right? everybody. And I think that there's a real failure of imagination because I don't think that any, most people cannot fathom that kind of world. 
And I think the people who are uncomfortable with that notion don't want to go down the rabbit hole of understanding why they're uncomfortable with it. Right. But they vote to protect it. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And so I feel like that's kind of like the next piece. But on, at the same time, we are also very cognizant of the fact that other people are watching us and we want to be a good example. We want to empower other women, other people, but especially women, mm-hmm. to like their authentic selves and to learn how to turn those scars into, I don't know, something beautiful, you know? transform it and make something better out of it. And that's where I, I, we talked a little bit, I mentioned to you before about the soul food framework in terms of ingredients. When you look at these things as ingredients, you have the things that maybe don't taste so great on their own, but depending on what you do with them and how, what you combine them with, you can make something really delicious. So I think of it that way, you know, like those were things that contributed to my, I call it a success buffet. And that has, you know, it's a buffet. So you like clean it out and bring in new stuff as the palate changes. But the thing about a buffet is there's plenty to share. My right. success is not just mine to enjoy. My success is success that I want to feed other people. Part of what I see with um, the Cure for Racism project, which I, I've mentioned to you, mm-hmm. more of that, the program that sort of developed from that workshop or that session was helping people redefine success because personal innovation, unlike personal development, is about redefining your success with regard to its impact on others and not just looking at the things that have held you back and like kind of rid yourself up from them, but instead to use those things to gain insight from them and use them as a launch pad for your next success and then redefining that success. That's one of the things I'm very passionate about helping people to do because I'm very I needed that, you know, like that project was my, I needed to hope that allyship would amount to something when I was feeling like it might just be a trend with not not, not much substantial change and transformation happening. And some of the conversations I was having after, you know, the George Floyd protest, Black Lives Matter, and like sort of the rise of that last summer made me feel very, very hopeless. Yeah, it, it, I felt very hopeless, but I believe and I know the world is not just the world, that the community I am in. And because I happen to be in the South, I understood intellectually that my view is different because of the white people that tend to want to gravitate here. I I heard a man from Michigan a few years ago actually called the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression. (laughs) Wow. Um, And he wasn't like a super old, like 80-year-old dude, you know? I became concerned about why white people were moving to the South. I know people talk about the weather, but I felt there was something about the Black people knowing their place that they liked about the South. I lived in Atlanta, so I'm from New York. Okay, Atlanta would be the exception. Okay, let me tell you, Atlanta is like the, because Atlanta is the only place where as a black woman, you can go and drive a Lexus and cops do not follow you. Well, it was very interesting to me, but what you just said was something that I felt very strongly. Mm-hmm. I moved to Atlanta and it was a culture shock for me. And we're talking about almost, I lived in Atlanta for 10 years. What year are you talking about? What year? We're, we're talking about not, I moved to Atlanta in 92. So I was there from 92 to there. 97. We could have been friends. We could have been friends. 
I was there till 2000. Totally. I moved there in like 90. Totally oh my goodness. Yes. It was different then. Now, I'm going to say it's different now. What I'm talking about is Atlanta now, not Atlanta then. That right. then we followed. And we were warned that certain hotels would not. Um, yes, this is very followed. interesting, right? Because, and, and here's the thing. It didn't take much for me to understand this right? Because I just went to school. I mean, not school. I just went to work and mm-hmm. went out with my friends and things like that. But there was this very real feeling and idea. And I think it was when I was working of as long as you stay in your place, know your place and stay in it, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. There'll be no problem. But the moment you start to show that you are a New Yorker, which I was, right? The moment you start to step out of that all of a sudden there's something that happens and that, that that's there to put you back in your, in your space, in your place. And I felt it. And I thought to myself, I will not, I will not live here forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to raise kids here <laughs> because I'm not sure that I know my place. I'm not sure that I, and and I'm not sure that you have the right to tell me where my place is, right? So if I'm just learning where my place is, I need to learn it on my own, not based on what you think my place is. So when you said that, I said, oh yeah, I felt that, like really felt it. Right. Without overt. Right. Right. It was there like an under current it's like it's an energy well the way i felt it was um now i know different people have different experiences in different places i'm sure like arizona is very different for hispanic people for example mm-hmm. than it is for a black person okay but my experience there was there is literally like an energy that tries to it felt to me to push you down that it takes so much energy just to stand up mm-hmm. what do you mean um, that I didn't feel when I went further west. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that it doesn't have its issues, but I have a theory. And I know this is a little woo-woo, but hear me out. <laughs> I believe that the constant reenacting of the Civil War battles keeps that energy, like literally that energy, alive and active. And a lot of state money goes towards those reenactments during universities. I mean, during anniversaries. Mm. Um, in Atlanta, they have a whole like thing devoted to that next to the zoo. Remember, Cyclorama or something it's called, mm. and then they have reenactments, and they have like all those monuments. And um, in Roswell, Georgia, when I lived there, they were developing this park. Now it's done. On one side, you have a big rock with like a statement from a Cherokee mother basically cursing the army and the general who's just killed her husband and her sons and they're forcing her on the trail of tears and she's just kind of like damn you you know for ruining my life Mm -hmm. across from that they have a statement from the general basically saying damn you for making me kill your family and your village they have a notion that that is fair and balanced but we would never consider doing that with like a holocaust victim and a nazi you see what i mean Mm-hmm. So I really do believe that in, in some way that I can't exactly explain or quantify for you, that it keeps that energy alive and active, whether it be just in the, the soul and spirits of the people, or if they are keeping the undead, um, you know, 
active and unsettled. I don't know what it is, but there is an energy to it. I think it affects people. I think it affects how white people define themselves in this region. Mm -hmm. And by default, it may have some impact on how black people are defining themselves. I think you are onto something there. <laughs> no, because I've never thought of it that way. But when, as you said it, as you say it, I go, at, well, of course. Think about ritual and why people engage in ritual. Yes. Life, right? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like there is some people who've had spiritual experiences. I've had spiritual experiences. There is there are things that you feel that you have no doubt are real, but you cannot explain them. Mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um, but you have no doubt that is something that I have felt so clearly that I can't explain what it is mm -hmm. but I know there's something real to it I think you're right I think you're right you know I mean just just everything you just said I think you're right and I think that it's you know it's spot on and so it's it's just kind of makes you wonder you know I I left the south came back north I live in Massachusetts now and it's just more comfortable for me, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that there's, we know that racism is built into, baked into the pie. We know this, right? We know that it's there. Yes. And that it needs to be weed, weeded out. Like it's, it's entrenched. The roots are deep. As I said, it's a deep. poison that's but, in every recipe in the cookbook. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. It's yes. like a cuisine that's just toxic and we're all just gobbling it down. Um, so. <laughs> we're all just taking it in. It's so true. It's so true. And some people have a higher tolerance than others. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, so the journey is how do we remove it um, from the ingredient of cell? And yeah. I just feel like everything else is futile until we can get enough people. I'm not saying it has to be everybody, but enough. I don't know what number would be enough, but I know that enough, when, when it gets there, we'll, we'll see something. You know, there'll be some sort of tipping point. Um, something. Yes. But when enough people, one, decide, I want to commit to doing the work to remove this ingredient from the, you know, this toxin from the ingredient of self, and then looking at what self is doing as an ingredient in like the larger scale, you know, mm -hmm. um, and looking at their success in that same way. Like, how is my success impacting others when there are enough people? Because that's really what has to shift. Why does systemic racism persist? Because a lot of people need that system because their success depends on it. So yes. we need people willing to redefine success. Yes, we need people to redefine success. You are so right. And so that is what you do as a, as a personal innovation mentor. Is that correct? It is. It is. And how does your process, how do you work to bring this about? You know, well, of course, it depends on where the person is. I meet them where they are. Uh, but I have like, I do discovery sessions. So that would be one just to see if we're a good fit to even work together. So those are, of course, complimentary and great. Mm -hmm. um, but then I have a three day challenge that's free to get people started on exploring some of this legacy stuff and some of the underpinnings of redefining their success. Um, I have a two day intensive 
that I do where I walk people through my program and customize it instead of, I have a five-step strategy for personal innovation. Um, so when people donate uh, to a Cure for Racism initiative um, with that program, uh, with that project, the next thing they get access to is Block to Blossoming, that's the name of it, which is walks you through that five-step process and that five-step strategy. So when the two-day intensive, we would do that together one-on-one and um, you benefit from the fact that I've been using this system and this process for since I was 16 or 17 years old, I started doing this. And then I worked with a coach to um, distill it into a program. But this is something I've been doing for a long time. And personal innovation is about the fact that you need to adapt to different chapters in your life. You know, who we are is not a static thing we're constantly becoming, right? And so I help people create that five-step strategy that will support them in that process of becoming so although it's a five-step strategy, it acknowledges that there is no cookie cutter for everybody. And like, I've been surprised at how many people, when I ask them, what is, what do you want? And they don't know. They've never thought about that. Have you, have you found that? Yes. Yes. And you know, I, I would have been one of those people. I would have been like, I don't know. I just want to be happy and I just want to live a happy life. And I just want, you know, <laughs> that's great. But what do you want? You know, <laughs> I think I was just bored, like being bossy and telling you. What. <laughs> and because yes. my mother allowed it, it allowed me to develop this kind of expertise. So, yes, it out. <laughs> you know, and it's called and it's leadership, right? I mean, we're we're reworking the ways that we use our words. We're realizing that words have so much power, the words that we use on a regular basis, which is why we don't say slave, we say enslave, because they didn't That's choose right. that. They were, it was thrust upon them. Exactly. Right? That's why we say marginalized versus minority, because, you know, marginalized, we're marginalized. That's why we're having the issues. It's right. not because we are of a minority group. It's because right. we're marginalized, right? So, you know, the ways in which we use words and the, the, the words that we say. So when we say to little girls, oh, you're so bossy, we're not saying that anymore. We say, wow, you have great leadership skills, but right now mommy's the leader. And so you need to follow the leader for now, like right? Yes, yes. I, mean, I never so, told my daughter she was bossy. Yeah, I didn't never <laughs> either. So I just kind of, you know, it's really interesting to me. I had... um my cousin came over with his wife. They were newlyweds. They were married maybe six months or so. And they came over for dinner and my daughter came and she was talking to her and she was showing her things and she was just being herself. And so when the kids went in and it just was adult time and we were just sitting to talk, she said to me, she says, how do you get her to be, how do you get her to be so confident? And I had to think about that for a second. I was like, I said, and, and my response was, I don't break her. I have not broken. Like, I don't tell her where her boundaries are. Now, if she's really off the rails, then it's right. like, okay, let's talk about this. <laughs> right? Let's on? talk about this. Right. 
But if it's not, then I allow her to express herself and allow her to be who she is. I don't impose my mommy dumb on her, which is something that a lot of us have grown up with. It's like, well, why can't I do it? Because I'm your mother and I said so and that's it, right? There's no conversation there. It's just, you know, just no. Um, So I, so that was my only answer. That was my only answer. I said, don't break her. And so she is free and happy to be who she is because I want her to go out and continue to be that confident and that outspoken, say what's on her mind, say what she feels, say what she thinks, because those things that make us uncomfortable as parents are those very things that we need our kids to have later on as adults, right? That's one of the things that's going to have to shift, I think, in the culture. Yes. You know, in our culture. Yes. Um, And I've heard other people, um, you know, Tam Brown people talk about similar things. So I think that part of this may be rooted in trying to prepare kids for a harsh world. And thinking, but I think that the opposite is needed. A child needs a lot of love and safety to have a refuge in the harsh world, you know? And I think my mother definitely gave me that. I have so many memories of so many people telling my mother she needed to beat me. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? That is another thing. That is also an outgrowth of slavery. I believe. Absolutely. Because I don't know that that is a necessary part of, de- of a child's development. I had an experience when I was four and I was watching, God, what movie was it? Uh, Underground Railroad. I was watching Underground Railroad. It was in the movie, the series, Amazon Prime. And there's um, a bit where there's like a public uh, whipping. And I had one of those when I was about four and I can't remember what I had done, but my grandmother was going to, to beat me and everybody gathered like people across the street and they all came and I didn't cry. And I stood there and I looked her in the eye. And then when she was done, I said, are you done? And she never hit me again. And it kind of established like my lore traveled throughout the family that I would not be broken. <laughs> and I remember realizing at four years old, if they can't make you cry, they will stop trying to hurt you. And I don't know, that's probably not like the best thing to learn it for. Um, but the only one that could make me cry was my mother. Nobody else could make me cry except my mother. Um, I did not want to disappoint her. I don't like to upset her to this day. Still a little bit of a mama's girl. It took me, look, I just shaved my head, like the, the back end. I've been wanting to do that since I was 17. I just did it, okay? <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so, um, my mother had the patience of a saint, okay? Because not surprisingly, I was a handful. And my mother worked two jobs and had to come home and deal with my mouth. And that you could never just tell me to do something, expect that I was going to do it. The older I got, the more I got into Amnesty International. And then I was very into my, my human rights and my civil rights being violated because I couldn't stay out till two o'clock. <laughs> Um, uh, grace period arguments, you know, like that was entitled. It was a human right to have a grace period when you broke curfew. I just can't fathom working two jobs and having to come home and deal with that kid. And I thank her all the time. I give her gifts sometimes when I think about these things and just like, thank you so much for not just giving me over to the state. Because if I had had me, I'd be like, here, you take her. (laughs) I'm not, you take this child. I, I cannot do nothing with that. 
I will kill her. Uh, <laughs> it was just, I, I love my mother so much. I am so grateful that I got her because I could not have raised me and had to work. And I have a brother too, a younger brother. And she doesn't act like it was a big deal, you know, and then she'd have to come out and defend me and the stuff at school that would pop up here every couple of years. Um, and she was just like a trooper about it, you know, and she always tried to make me, well, one of the things that we we're talking when we we're talking about people not knowing what they want, this is part of that from the time I could talk, I've been telling her what I want. I'm not going to wear this. I don't want to eat that, you know, and she allowed it. And she made me feel that what I wanted mattered. And yeah. that experience that I witnessed, most of my friends had never had. Um, nobody cared what they wanted, black, white, or otherwise. Um, mm. you know, it's like nobody really cared what they wanted. I, I had a friend whose father was the dean of the sociology department. And when I came back home and I was visiting with him, and he said to me, sometimes you wonder if you should have hugged them instead of ignoring them. Children? in sociology and his expertise he's a sociologist and he's wondering if he should have hugged him of the department at our university at the time and he said this and I can totally see that philosophy guiding what I saw with his daughters and so I think that that the love you know the the pouring love into a child is much more needed than trying to toughen them up for a harsh world, the world is going to kick your butt. You need no know matter some- what. <laughs> no matter what, right? If somebody loves you, no matter what. Exactly. You need to know that you have a place to go, no matter what. Like there's a, there's a, you know, one of the things. <laughs> it's very interesting because I'm first generation Haitian American or second generation. Oh. I don't know. My parents are from Haiti, and I was born here. Oh, everybody, are you family? No, I don't have any family there, but thank you. Yes. And it, you know, but it's still, you know, hurts. I mean, just uh, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. But so I remember, I think I was about 14 years old. We went to go visit my grandmother and my aunt down in Florida. And I was telling my aunt how I was going to graduate from college and I was going to have my own apartment. And, and she stopped me and she said, your father is not going to let you have your own apartment. You are not moving out until you get married. And I turned to her and I was like, have you met my father? (laughs) Because my father would say, oh, I can't wait for you to leave. I can't wait for you to leave but you can always come back to regroup. You can always come back here, but I, you, I can't wait for you to go. And, and, and basically what he was saying was go and experience life, do, do your life. But if anything happens, or if you ever need to, you're, you can always come back here. Right. In her mind, she was thinking that he was going to be like an old school Haitian man and be like, my daughter's not leaving this house until she's going into her husband's house. And I had been living with my dad. I was like, I don't know where, who you're talking about. <laughs> but the man I know, he's like, go. <laughs> yeah, my family was, I actually come from one of those kind of families. Uh, my daughter is the first one to leave the house and not leave to get married. She left to, you know, go pursue her herself. Um, you find her herself in the world 
I I got married when I was 19. So I left the night that I graduated high school and started living with my then boyfriend, now husband. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't quite do it the way my grandparents intended for us to do it. (laughs) But I, and I was leaving to, to start school, but it just wasn't, it wasn't the school I really wanted and all that kind of stuff. So it was really more about him and our dogs <laughs> than it was um, <laughs> school or anything. Uh, so it's interesting though, looking at that kind of coming, that kind of traditional family thing and like how much things have changed. Like my mm. husband actually got a hand in marriage. <laughs> And made like promises to my mother and they had like a real conversation about, you know, what she expected. <laughs> wow. I know. That's a beautiful scene. I mean, it's just so interesting, right? So well, it's like it's changed so much, you know? It, it has changed. So much. And just kind of like, that's why we have to adapt. You know, it's like, as we get older, I think more women, more mature women are not looking at that next chapter and thinking about grandkids and stuff like that, like our grandmothers were, or our moms, we are looking at the things that we hadn't done yet to think, well, for me, the things Mm -hmm. I do because I was raising my kids, you know, because that was my focus. That was my job. You know, like those three kids were my job. And I guess my husband, our relationship was like a part, well, it was a full-time job, but it felt like a part-time job, you know, because it wasn't (laughs) work. You know what I mean? Like marriage, if you're lucky, should not feel like a job, <laughs> but it takes work. Do you know what I mean? Are you married? Right, right. I am married. I am. Okay. We've been, we're coming on uh, 19 years in December. Okay. So you know what I mean when I say that, like it takes work, but it shouldn't be work. Mm-hmm. So it's not you know laborious work. It's fun work, but that was so my focus. And I don't think I saw any examples of women who, pursued their their personal success after 40. <laughs> You're right. And Nancy Pelosi is the one that only person I can think of that I have sort of clung to for a few years because she started her career in the Senate in her mid-40s, I believe. And initially, you know, she was raising her kids and the skills that she developed during those years, she applied to her new career, which is very much like what I've done the skills mm-hmm. that I developed. And a lot of what I do with clients is what I've learned to do with my kids around creating unit studies, being mm-hmm. unit studies for them based on their interest. So I would have a unit study all mapped out that I had been working on and been up, made, you know, cut out all sorts of things. And then they would not be feeling it. And so <laughs> I would have to tweak it for what they were interested in. So when they ran to dinosaurs, you know, find a way to working things in, um, in food. Food was always a great way to bring them into any. So most of our unit studies incorporated food somehow because nice. that way to get them engaged. You can have really good conversations with boys when you're doing things with them. And I didn't believe in age segregation. So they were all schooled together. And so trying to, you know, customizing each person's lesson in a way, but then doing them at the same time. Right. <laughs> it was like a skill. I didn't know it was like a skill. Um, I was like, oh, okay, that's a thing. Okay, I, I know how to do unit studies. And I was like, I didn't know everybody could do that. So that's kind of like what I do for my clients is I am able to understand what their real thing is, despite what their words are saying. Right. <laughs> and we start with foundational stuff because you can't really get to that other stuff unless you do that foundational work. And so 
that's really kind of, so it's like partly developing a five-step strategy for the personal innovation and then giving them a starter toolkit and teaching them how to use it. And so during that first three months um, that we're working together, that's what we're doing. We're learning to use that toolkit, doing the check-in, sharing, you know, they tell me what issues they're having. I tweak it to make it, I want to set them up for success. And that's what I like to do for myself. I like for people to think about how do you tackle whatever it is in a way that's going to set you up to be successful with whatever it is that you're doing. Right. We're all learning. We're all on a learning journey and we're all learning hopefully and you know, the next generation will do it even better and there'll be even more growth and, you know, opportunity and all of that because. Um, from, from your lips to God's ears, right? That's right. <laughs> I think that that's, you know, the work that you're doing is really important. I think that's a big part of why I do what I do. In addition to my client, the clients that I mentor, pay clients, I also mentor young people through We the World a nonprofit organization based out of New York, founded by Rick Ulfick. And my business, everything that I do, supports their campaign for freedom, is a fundraiser for some of the projects and initiatives, paid internships, uh, technical assistance for Black, Indigenous, people of color, uh, small businesses to mentor more social entrepreneurs. So that has been very fulfilling. That's when I had just had finished with somebody from Nepal. Uh, who was a new immigrant, just came to the U.S. last year. And she gave me a wonderful, wonderful um, endorsement on LinkedIn that just, uh, she's 25. And I feel really good that I gave her, she said that she was transformed in our little, our time working together. And I feel like I gave her some things that are really going to help her in her life and helping her understand what real leadership, where it comes from in in you. I love it. I love it. So tell people where they can find you and what you're working on presently. I'm at a coffee shop near you. No, just <laughs> I do love coffee. Um, <laughs> well, you can find me on Instagram, um, of course, LinkedIn. Uh, my website, uh, empoweredinnovation.org, um, is more for the business folks. And uh, webantifon.com focuses more on the personal. At empoweredinnovation.org, um, you can get the complimentary report, the business case for personal innovation that uh, sort of makes the case uh, for all the things that we've been talking about. And I give people data, statistics, and case studies, lay out the case for why this is necessary and why I have taken this approach because complex adaptive system, those kinds of models and theories are, I mean, if you wanna get really technical about it, it's based on that model but I come at it from a more artsy, creative place. Right. Well, I will definitely have all the links in the show notes so that the, so that our listeners can contact you, connect with you, get to know what their success, what success means for them. And, and it's it's, buffet to share. Yes. (laughs) Rooting out the poison. Rooting out the poison. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Sadie. This was so fun. Oh, it was. But before you leave, we have to ask you one last question because this is diversity dish. Yes. So I want to know what is your favorite dish? Oh, girl. Um, Honestly, it depends on the day. Okay, so I'll preface it with that. So if somebody asks me this again and I say something different, it just depends on where I am. 
But most recently, I had some delicious tiramisu when I was in Atlanta. <laughs> and one of my other collaboration partners uh, is doing a sort of pirate theme thing, and they have named me Tyranny Sue. <laughs> Um, so I would have to say tiramisu. That's like what I'm, uh, you know, I, I love it. Yum, 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 I, yum. I, I will skip dinner, you know what I mean, for a good dessert. Hey, <laughs> sometimes. For both, if I got a pick, I can eat a salad for breakfast. There you go. There you go. Because Because you know what? Because that's the power that you have. You can do things differently, right? We, we, we tend to to, to hold ourselves into these these boxed norms and it's like no you can do things differently it doesn't have my to grandma be. blew my mind when she let me order dessert for the first time um well let me order dessert first when i was a kid blew my mind no adult had ever allowed it changed my life changed your life see it can change change your whole perspective right yeah may i ask what is your favorite you know, my favorite thing is potatoes. So I love potatoes, however you give them to me. Wow. Okay. Soup, scallops, fried, <laughs> French fries, you know, whatever. I like potatoes. Yeah, that's too. I just love them. Yeah. Um, I haven't been doing much cooking lately, so I guess that's why I thought it was dessert first. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Thank you so much with, for being here with me on Diversity Dish, Yvette. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has it's been great fun. Thank you. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at Patreon dot com backslash Cedrola Maruska. And finally, before you go, don't forget diversitydish.com. I'd love to work with you. See you soon.